This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. It's Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. It's Friday, June 30th. Good morning, everybody, and happy just about to be 4th of July weekend. We're in the dog morning, days Charlie of summer and Ted. now. What's, yeah. what's that, Ronnie? Good morning, Charlie and Ted. Good morning, Ronnie. <laughs> yeah, how's, my, how's my mic doing? Is your mic doing well this morning? Yes, I was, I've been leaning in. I brought my mic a little closer as we well. We got our mic. I know. We've, was... been, we've been advised to raise our game and not be so right. sloppy. So we are uh, in the dog days of summer, we would say the dog days of XR summer. Um, I, there's congratulations in order today, Ted. This is show 150. Wow, that's impressive. I think that's impressive, regardless of what you do for a living. <laughs> we have managed to do this 150 times, and I think maybe I've missed three or four over the yeah, years. No, it's just one or two. Uh, it's kind of remarkable, and our audience keeps building. and. Uh, People seem to like what we're doing, you know. Yeah, we we've hit it hit a nice inflection point around the time we added this third co-host. <laughs> yeah, the way I so, sort of look at it is, you know, I think the most popular podcast on the planet now is Smartless uh, with uh, Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and uh, and yeah. Sean Hayes, and it is a fantastic melange of listening to those three friends be friends. And now there's an HBO show that I guess Amazon produced for HBO, and they got a huge deal to do it. And it, it is so charming and so lovely to watch those guys be those guys. And somehow I kind of think in our little micro tech world, we're kind of like those three guys. Like we all have <laughs> our little little shtick. We all do our thing. And we just like getting together on a Friday morning, every Friday morning and kicking it around. And we're ready for that HBO deal, right? We're yeah, yeah, I, I know I know I am. So <laughs> <laughs> let's let's oh, we have also great guests for our uh, 150th show, uh, David Gannick and Joel Newton of City Lights, uh, which is, I guess, kind of a VR studio. They produce and uh, distribute uh, experiences. They uh, produce some of their own. They uh, help finance other people. So uh, and David is also mixed up. Up with a big education VR education program at USC that I'd love to hear more about. So and they are they are very much VR OG. Uh, you know, I've been, at this point, at, at this point, they really are. They've yeah. been at this probably longer than just about anybody. Joel and I worked together on uh, the Martian VR project, which was one of the oh sure seminal things. Yeah, the the one that Technicolor and Marcy Chastro were involved with. And David and I have spent many, many hours kicking things around and oh, watching good. it continue to evolve. So it'll be a fun, it'll good. be a fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. So there was some big news this week, but also some things that I want to comment on. Uh, in the interest of time, let's start with the uh, with the big things. Uh, Databricks is acquired for one point three billion dollars. This two year old company that helps enterprises build private models. Uh, you know the. <laughs> It comes out to about 21 million per employee. You know, we had a big laugh about what the amount was when 
Facebook acquired Instagram, but I think this tops that considerably. I was stunned at the amount. I mean, maybe that um, clearly it makes sense uh, for. I mean, the first thing I thought is Databricks worth $31.3 billion. Yeah. I mean, Databricks and Snowflake are forces to be reckoned with now about data management, data siloing. So these are very large, very profitable companies, right? That are learning that they need to have a play in this sector to be to continue to be relevant. So, I guess maybe overpaying is a is a is a technique that you do there. I don't know. It's so, so okay, <laughs> Augmetics. This is a deal that makes sense. And actually, Roni, I'd be I'm surprised. I'll be surprised if you don't know about these guys. Oh, uh, I know them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a product called X Vision. And a very unique way of delivering. I mean, and there's several companies, uh, including um, Chandra Devam's company, that uh, that uh, are working to identify and somehow anchor CT scans on real anatomy, so that doctors know where to cut and they can kind of see through your skin. So this is a totally different approach, though, because they're actually projecting the uh, digital imagery on the patient itself. So they're not looking through glass. The head-mounted display is a projector, and they're they found a way to like tilt five, sort of. Yeah, right. They're anchoring to the body to the yeah. They're anchoring to the physical body, but yeah. they're not wearing glasses. Yeah, it's, I actually the data uh, is on the skin. Sure. I, I um when I was uh, when I was in Europe in the last couple of weeks, I went to to Brain Lab, uh, which is one of the big computer surgery companies in the world, and. I got that. I can't comment too much detail, but they're they're building something which I would say is a very serious competitor to Augmetics. It was it was stunning. Um, it was using the Magic Leap too, which was really cool. Yeah. Uh, but it was just stunning what they had done in terms of like how surgery is going to unfold. So I think it's an interesting space. Yeah. Um, the question I have for a company like them is how do you ultimately compete against Striker, J and J? Zimmer, all the big players, Medtronic and, and companies like Brain Lab that have the whole suite, the whole uh, everything. My guess is they're just wanting to be acquired. That's my guess. Other news. Uh, this is not good news. This is Niantic laying off uh, 230 people, closing their LA office, uh, moving away from development and, produ of, and production of titles, and they're going to focus on their knitting, uh, which is the titles they've already launched, as well as Pokemon Go, which continues to make billions of dollars every year. Uh, and I gather from one report that they are going to be focused more on Lightship, their uh, essentially development platform for XR experiences that also involves their SLAM technology. So you could anchor uh, content anywhere on the, in, in the world that uh, any smartphone can see. Uh, and it can be very, very, very precisely uh, placed there. So this is a not a good news story. And apparently Hanky sent a letter uh, in which he told, admitted, felt the company was underperforming, which is rare, but Hanky is a very honest guy and uh, took responsibility, of course. Uh, but their performance, I think, across their whole portfolio uh, is not great right now. Uh, and he mentioned retention and some other issues that that Meta and others uh, are struggling with. So, uh, I mean, that... Charlie, I, I like the company. I like what they what they're trying to do. Um, the question is, as an independent, in the face of Apple, in the face of Meta, with so much funding, first of all, your your best talent is probably getting raided. 
um, you know, to those companies where the employees know there's just like many billions per year of funding to go the distance. Um, but also, how do you ultimately stand out against what an Apple and others are just going to build as well? Like, do you ultimately have to get acquired by or hope that you do something super unique and different on top of all the tools? Let's just use Apple as an example. We'll put out there. Um, I mean, if they could survive five, seven more years, uh, when you suddenly have like, let's say the blooming of consumer AR, I think they're going to do great. Um, consumer AR and wearable, right? But the phone consumer AR seems to be, I hate to say this, but maxed out. People know it's like the the taste of the real thing. And now that the real thing's starting to come out and Apple's put out a foot, it's still not at scale, but that's really where companies like Niantic, I think will bloom. So they just have to hang on for five to seven more years. That's my guess. Well, they just raised a ton of money. I mean, they raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, but they're probably burning through it. I mean, look at the size of the company. They're probably yeah. burning through it they, fast. They, have like, I mean, they had like, they did have close to 2000 employees. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's going to eat up the, the cash really fast. At the end of the day, and Charlie, and you've heard me talk about this off and on through our couple of years of podcasting, the challenge with something that is creative by nature is generating a hit. And if you don't have a hit for a while, it can be a massive profit drain on something that you've grown a company to support that first hit. So yes, Pokemon Go, we've often said, is that lightning in a bottle or is it a sustainable model? And it's kind of been proving a little bit over and over again that it's lightning in a bottle because they tried it with Harry Potter. It didn't work. They tried it with the NBA. It didn't work. They tried it with Marvel. It didn't work. And that's sort of indicative of the market that we live in today with these technological tools and driving an entertainment model is every once in a blue moon, it works. And when it works, it's enormous and it can drive profit for a considerable period of time. But if you can't have a follow-up over time, everything starts to erode and you still have that crazy burn of trying to be something that ultimately you're not. You're you know, this unbelievable flash in the pan that works so incredibly well, that is a worldwide phenomenon and will be forever, right? But then duplicating that becomes extraordinarily difficult. And we've seen- Well, they drafted off Nintendo, over. right? Nintendo is an incredibly good company, what you just said, Ted. They can craft tech and creative in a way that very few companies in the world have ever been able to do. Like, they're just like that model of perfect tuning between both. And I think Niantic wanted to be that, but they were drafting off of Nintendo's IP, not their own. Yes. Right? It felt like they should have just right. been rolled there was, up There's a Nintendo. huge, huge nostalgia component. Um, you know, I think they added the location-based uh, discovery aspect of it, and it just blended really well with the IP. And so I, 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 you know, and again, I mean, so much of it has to do with nostalgia and the success of the original property, uh, the idea that you're bringing it back for, you know, many of the same people came back as adults and as parents, uh, you know, so there's there's a lot of power in that. And, and so I think you're right about the Nintendo brand. I mean, the exposure that they got, you know, in, in the 90s is is so big and people think about it so well that it, it's just a natural. Some of those old properties, uh, you know, are, are waiting to be rediscovered. What we do know is that there will be a next monster hit. Will it be from uh, Niantic? Maybe, maybe not. But somewhere yeah. out there in the universe is the next Pokemon Go. Someone's yep. creating it on some sort of tool, whether it's within a, a Vision Pro or the Quest 3 
or a phone-based system, but it's out there, right? Creativity is, is limitless and someone will do it. It's just super, super hard to get there. That's my point. So so last piece of news, I'd, I was going to bitch about AI regulation. And, you know, there was an op-ed uh, that was uh, actually in all of all places, the New York Post, but there was this op-ed that said, how are we going to regulate AI when we can't regulate the internet? So, and I thought, well, thank God somebody is saying that because all of this stuff is grandstanding if you can't control the distribution of information. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, anyway, let me get to this last story and then let's bring in uh, Joel and David. Uh, Google kills its internal AI project. This company has never met an AR project. AR, not AI. Yeah. yeah, sorry. This company has never met an AR project. It could not throw overboard. There was a brief <laughs> moment of enthusiasm when they had the joint venture with Samsung. Uh, and I think that's still going on and Qualcomm and Samsung, and they're making some kind of AR device. But the one that they were developing based on the North technology, the company they acquired in 2020 is getting pitched overboard. It's no longer. Yeah. I have to be careful in commenting because they they were significant investors in my company and I got to know the guys there. Uh, I'll be very, very careful in how I say it. But at Meta, you have a very focused leader, whether you like him or not, who completely believes in the sector of XR. Mark is all in. It's going to happen, right? He sees that vision. I think what's happening at Google Alphabet is you don't have that center. Yeah. There's just also not Clay, that Clay center of gravity. Left. It's Clay left, left. Clay, Clay was a believer. Clay was a believer in it, but he yep. wasn't in the seat of power to drive mm. it as a center. And I think if you don't have that belief system, if you don't see that future, and you're willing to go through these years of pain to get there, which Mark is, uh, you just you just don't have the conviction. And I think they just don't have the conviction. Yeah, we see right, I'm bringing bringing in David and Joel. Okay. We've uh, seen it with Microsoft as well, right? That same dynamic of don't sort have the real conviction and then pulled back. So yeah, Sachi has conviction in Azure, right? He has conviction in the cloud, not so much in in the endpoints in the devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey guys, Joel, welcome. Hello, Joel. Joel, meet yeah. meet Roni. I know you know Tad. Good to meet uh, you, Joel. Good to meet you. Hey guys, do you see, am I am I on here? We we yes, hear you. Yes, we, we hear, hear you. you. No audio, no video. No video so, as of no yet. Video. No video. People will listen anyway. So if you can't get your video, it's okay. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm not. No, 90, no one's going to miss anything by not seeing me. I can tell you it's, that. It's, it's not ninety-five percent of our listeners, or something like that, is there. on iTunes. There you are, David. How you doing? Hey, how are you guys? Great. Well, we've already started talking about uh, some of the great projects you've been working on, uh, inc including Spheres, uh, which. Um, you know, won at several film festivals and is a terrific film by Eliza McNitt, which I, you guys, um, you know, were the studio that, that financed it and is distributing it. It's also on the quest. Uh, I have my students watch it every semester. It's just a terrific film and a great use of XR. And you also produced the King Tut uh, VR exhibition that is on tour, I think. Uh, so, so let us know first, you know, how are those projects going? Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. Um, you know, Spheres has um, been very, really interesting because when you think about, you know, the range of in in a world that really hasn't fully formed yet in terms of distribution, you know, it, we first started with a, 
a pop-up at Rockefeller Center in New York, which, which was, you know, probably the first of its kind. This is three or four years ago and did, it did very well. And then, um, you know, right now it's, it's in, um, it's in like Indiana and Philadelphia. It's been to Paris and the most interesting and probably the most successful one, which is semi counterintuitive is we did a distribution deal in China where they uh, demoed it in two, uh, a company called Sandman dem demoed it in two sites, in two theaters, um, pop theaters um, in China. It then went to 12 and now they've come back and said they wanna put it in 30 places and it's done better than anything else that they've tried, um, probably because it's well-produced and it's high quality, but also it's three 15 minute episodes. So for the whole business model with respect to getting people to come someplace, you know, it was, it's counterintuitive. I don't think we were thinking that at all at the, at the outset of this, but they found that it's the best vehicle to, you know, really drive customer, um, customers basically showing up. So it's been in its short shelf life. It's been in a lot of places. It's kind of, it's been an interesting uh, journey. No irony meant. David and Joel, do I remember it was also in a museum in Montreal, perhaps somewhere in Canada that it was had a run, right? That was kind of a, a very artistic kind of, they were, they were demonstrating. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, Joel. Yeah, I, we did I, distribution I, with the, with the with the center and, um, there's another partner called Wonder Spaces that has it actually in like three different markets. I think it just closed in Austin. Like it's kind of incredible when you look at the map of all the places that people have bought a ticket and put on a VR headset, most of them probably for the first time, right? Like, like for, for all of us, it's like, you know, it's like we've seen everything, we've done everything, but it's, it's, it, you have to keep remembering that like the general, general public, like the real eight to 80 audience that shows up to a thing like King Tut, almost all of them, are brand new you know like they they're they've not been in headset they've not been in this conversation for five years like they're they're doing it for the first time and these um these projects seem to be a really good starting point for a general audience so it leads me to a to an interesting question since we've known each other through many cycles we've worked <laughs> on projects together and i would say now we're probably at least 10 years, maybe 12 years into this journey. Um, do you still believe there is a journey? Clearly you're here on the podcast and you're continuing to do things. And I know you're gonna talk about something you're doing in Northern California at a major uh, national park, which I think is kind of an amazing use case. Um, but before we get to those sort of practical things, where do you sit after being in this, in the slog of keeping something moving because of your belief structure about a new form of entertainment that is coming, it's still coming, right? Are you yeah. as much of a believer as you were when we were all working together on something? This is what you I'm know, Ted. When we started um, City Lights, you know, and and you know, my background was in um, largely in in public investing in technology, and you know, so you know, having done it for a while and seen numerous product cycles, because that's in effect what this is. Um, it's probably the, the I, I refer to it as the most significant product cycle for the rest of most people's lives in my mind. You know, the transition from a, from a digital world um, to this web 2.0 world. Um, 
you know, the whole idea at the very beginning and, you know, yeah, and I, I haven't been in the journey as long as you and Joel, but, you know, I remember meeting you a few years, you know, we met, we, we met a couple of times a few years back, you know, it was always a question of timing, right? There, there, you know, and my experience with these product cycles is I, there's a bit of irony in the sense that, you know, 10 years before a product cycle, sometimes enthusiasm is at its maximum point and that attracts capital. And the product cycle is really, no, it's more conceptual and nowhere near real. Mm -hmm. um, I think we saw that happen in this space. And, and there's, there, you know, there are graveyards littered with some of those ideas and investments. So at the very outset, the risk factor was always going to be one of timing, right? How far in front of the curve and timing is not something, you know, that you really know the answer to. Um, so when we started City Lights a few years back, that was one of the primary risk factors to say, okay, is our timing, you know, too early? Um, I think it's been pretty good, you know, it's been, it's been a digestible time period. You know, we've seen, you know, the evolution of the headset. We now have Apple coming into the market. We've got Facebook, we've got Pico, we've got a lot, a lot of CapEx that's going into this and better asset allocators than I am, or most people are betting on the future of this. Um, as with, with respect to the journey of LBE in, in this case, because the home market is developed, but it's largely developed into a gaming market, which was, which is also a bit of, which frankly has also been a bit of a surprise, you know, just how much of a gaming market Meta's become. Um, but with respect to LBE, I agree. It's been, you know, there, there, there's still a timing question out there, but our, our basic goals when we started was to try to be an innovator. You know, somebody gave me an expression a long time ago, which I've appropriated that all cycles are the three eyes, innovators, imitators, and idiots. And my experience is <laughs> if you want to look around the corner and make a bet on the future, you're making a bet on being an innovator. And the innovator stage of the cycle comes with risks. Your timing might be wrong. You know, all kinds of things can go wrong, but it also enables you um, to build a brand, you know, with, with a lower, much lower bar, certainly than the imitator or idiot stage of the cycle. And that's really what we've endeavored to do here. So looking at the LBE world, yeah, there, there is less developed, certainly in the United States than I would have thought at this point. But I, I you know, the bet here is that I think you know the the percolation of people doing immersive experiences is, is expanding every day, and the 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 demand and interest in it when consumers are in front of it are are is is of a high enough you know enthusiasm that it keeps us you know in the game and still thinking that this bet is very much on. Um. So, Ted, you brought up this Yosemite project. What can you guys tell us about that? What, what is that? I'll turn so, it over. Uh, uh, Experience Yosemite is the title. Um, it's a 22-minute uh, journey around Yosemite National Park. Um, David and I talk all the time about a thing I got from the guys at Stryker way back in the day, that VR is really good, that dire, D-I-R-E, like yeah. dangerous, impossible, rare, expensive. And it's like looking at the history of Yosemite, looking at all the stories is very similar to the King Tut situation, but like the opposite in terms of physical scale, right? Instead of like a tiny tomb with a bunch of stories, it's this huge expansive thing with just as much of a library of history and stories and 
things to talk about, things to do. So like, I think our first version was more like a virtual tour that would match what you would do if you went there. And where we landed was this collection of experiences you're never going to get, right? Like, like you go up on the diving board, which is this crazy rock protrusion that takes a pretty, you know, a pretty serious hiker is the only person who's ever going to get there. And you go there and you're there and you watch Ansel Adams create his iconic portrait of Half Dome. And like you learn about the technique that he pioneered in that spot. And you're standing in that spot and learning about that. You fly over to the waterfall where John Muir climbed up at night and almost died. It's like you're going to all these experiences and these stories and these moments that you get told when you're there, but you're never gonna get there. You're never gonna see it. Like even Firefall, like there are a lot of people that see it, you know, for like a few days in February every year, but most visitors just hear about it. So for us, it was like the power of VR is really good at scale, really good at dangerous, really good mm -hmm. at these things that that um, I think is very repeatable when it comes to these evergreen national treasure type experiences. Uh, one of the things that David really keyed in on is we did photogrammetry uh, and we had to kind of keep the location a little, a little quiet of this native rock art because they've had some vandalism and you know, like there, there's kind of a, a safety dance of like wanting to celebrate it, but not really wanting crowds of people going there. And it feels like that, like th th there's this wonderful thing where VR can do that job. Like we take, we can take infinite amount of people into that cave and see that art and learn the story of that art without actually damaging or causing the kind of like environmental distress that a big crowd causes. And that's been a big part of the national park story ever since, right? Like in the, in native times, like there were like in like 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 pre-Columbus days, Yosemite was this crossroads where there were all trails that went there. There were all these cultures that went in and out of there, and all of their instincts was this place is really special. Let's protect it. Let's let's create some treaties around how we share this place. And then you have in like modern times, it's like there's this moment when they they pave a road around it and they want every American to visit it. But as soon as every American visits it, it actually damages some of what it is. So with King Tut's tomb, there's similar issues there with some of these other international landmarks that we're working on now. There's this ability for VR to let people get really close and really intimate with things that at scale we're trying to preserve. So David and Joel, I'm going to give you guys a, a perspective because um, I think your theory of why you started all this is correct. Um, and instead of trying to predict your timing, although I'll give you a, a sense of timing, I'm going to give you a, a set of parameters you have to have for this thing to really bloom and for everyone in VR to really bloom. I think one of the issues is not anything you guys are saying. It's that the hardware has been kind of crap for a long time. <laughs> what, I, what I mean by kind of crap is it's too heavy. It makes most people sick, especially women. Um, and those issues are being slogged through. The resolutions have we're not really good. They're getting better. Apple just showed more than 4K per eye. It's still a little bit heavy at 400 something grams. There's a set of conditions where you're like 200 grams or below, better than 4K per eye, really frictionless. Battery's really good. Um, the photogrammetry is now like no, no pixels. You're incorporating all the cool generative AI stuff. So just stuff is dramatically amazing. At that moment in time, we're not far away, right? A company like you guys, 
in 2035 is going to be making an extremely large amount of capital. A company like you in 2030 may be doing really well. A company like you in 2025 is still climbing the mountain to the place where all the things you want to have happen begin to happen. So you almost need to rethink that you're starting your company today in 23 with the launch of the Apple Vision Pro and going, this is day zero. You have to have like that Bezos day zero because you were not wrong conceptually 10 years ago, but the hardware was not like by putting the hardware out there. And I'm one of the guys that put it out there. We discovered what all the issues really are. And now I could say for fact, everyone serious building hardware knows all the issues mm-hmm. and is putting billions of dollars to resolve them. That's actually encouraging for you, but you kind of need to wait the next, you got to ride out the rest of this decade, knowing that it'll get better every 18 to 24 months. And at some point you unlock the, I would say like this crystallization moment where it's so good, it's light, it's powerful. The visual qualities is unbelievably amazing. And all the things you just said come to life for a mass audience, because it's like everything true, but someone puts on, it's like, this is too heavy. My face has all these like weird warts on it. I'm feeling nauseous in five (laughs) minutes. It looks too grainy. The promise of being in like the the, the national park without being eaten by wolves or whatever's going to happen. You will be able to completely deliver that promise in the, in the next years. I can't complete to tell you if it's three years, five, seven, but you need to be able to kind of like survive that. That's my best advice. You guys, if you could hang on, the rest of this decade is going to be like, we're over the top of the hill and we're running down it now. I completely can tell you that is true. So you just have to hang on though. Like, don't, don't be the pioneer that like died half the way to the, to California, keep traveling through the country. You got to get to the Pacific. If that makes so sense. So why, why don't you respond to that? I have a, I, I have a, I have a shorter response. I suspect than you do, but I'll, you go first. Well, uh, Ronnie, I agree with you. Honestly, when I approached David about this, that was my thinking. Because before that, I was in a venture capital-backed VR startup. And, okay. and, and, I, and all my friends were venture-backed. And everybody had these way too early, ridiculous timelines of whatever our product was. There was no audience for it within the 18 months or the two years or whatever the runway or whatever yeah. the milestone was. And it was, it was just all too early. And it was all cooked into this like, go fast, burn through capital, hit your mind. Like, you know, there was just this pace to the culture of that kind of investing. And when I approached David, like David, I don't even remember this, but one of like my very first conversations I had with you is like, look, I don't know if I want to raise capital or if I want your capital or if I want you to help me think through this, but there has to be a different model. There has to be a way where capital can go into projects the way it does, like in my industry is Hollywood. I'm not from Silicon Valley. I'm not from tech. You know, it's like, you don't. JJ Abrams doesn't sell 20% of Bad Robot to make a movie. But venture capital is like everyone's selling stock in their company, but then we're not making a platform. We're, we're just making content. We're just making projects for Fox with Ted, right? You know, like that, that just didn't make sense to me. And it was like, and I, you know, we talked about like, if we start making great projects that we can monetize, and we can start building a library knowing that the, we don't know the timing of when that library becomes valuable at a more scaled mass audience. But if we can monetize and learn and improve and get better and better at doing what we're doing. And what's weird is that has made it so we're good at making a SKU that works in LBE, but is not really a home product yet. 
right? An eight minute King Tut tour makes no sense in the Quest store, according to Quest. But eventually I think that is a valuable home market product in a, in a store where you have a broader, more mainstream, more differentiated user base. I also think there is a there is a moment, not now, but in the next five years where people are going to have methods of consuming this content. They'll be distributed broadly enough, um, you know, pro probably with some kind of smartphone accessory. But what it means is it opens up the education market, which has previously been closed because the technology is not widely distributed. So I think there's that world that's ahead of us and there's no content for that world. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's sort of so. So I think I mean, there's no first class spatial content for that market. There's lots of 360 yeah. stuff, but obviously yeah. what you're doing is 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 completely different because it's 3D, um, and and of course because it you know fully occludes the physical world. So um, I do think there you know when you talk about timing, that is a market that really doesn't exist today, which you know we all know is going to be one of the leading drivers of revenue long term for VR content creation. Here's the value you guys have. It's going to sound odd, but you have been working with real audiences, understanding what they like and don't like, understanding what works and doesn't work in VR. So a group like yours is very honed to make something amazing on a really cool system like the Vision Pro uh, or mm -hmm. or something like a Magic Leap 2 or Magic Leap 3 or, or what's coming next. You, you know what works. You know how the audience responds. You know how to optimize those devices versus people who come in new they're going to have a five, seven, 10 year learning cycle where they don't understand audience reaction. It's different from movies. It's not video games. It's something else. So that is incredibly valuable. Like if you were able to leverage that and, and not lose that, that's, that's supremely interesting. Yeah. Rona, you made two points. I think that, that are, are well, well said and part of the innovator stage of the cycle, right? I think that um, I think if you take a step, just to push back a little bit, at least from our experience, and I get all your, I get all the criticism that you mentioned about, you know, people's experience with headsets. Um, I, I think you have to kind of put, you, you know, you got to connect that to like what, what, what I would use a different word of just describing most of the world as a virgin with respect to a good virtual product. And, you know, there's, you know, we talked about it before, but most of the people, the bar is very low. And if they've done anything over the last five years, it's probably been completely janky and, and really just produced in a way to make you feel worse. Um, so our experience, and, and look, I, I don't, I don't want to overstate our experience because, you know, we've only distributed, you know, so much relative to the size of the market, ultimately what the size of this market is, is that most people really enjoy a well-produced experience. And the bar for them is much lower than the bar for the people on, on, the, on this call. You know, they're not- yeah, our critical. bar is very high. Yeah, yeah, your bar is like, I can't even see your bar, it's so Yeah, high. yeah. And I think that, um, you know, has led to like people, you know, really having customer satisfaction. When we were doing our King Tut tour, for instance, and I've, I've had a, a fairly, you know, uninspiring view of video mapping shows, you know, I thought the, I thought the Van Gogh show was a great example of an innovator's benefit, right? It came at the right time and it really did incredible amounts of business. But subsequent to that, people's bar goes up and, and the model is, is, is a challenging model. Our um, VR experience, Enter the Tomb, was connected to the show. 
And what we found is that the customer satisfaction from a 20,000 square foot, you know, place with tons of video screens and this and that, um, the customer was at a six for those. Okay. Our, ours, they were at a nine and a half, you know, now I, I don't mean that to, I'm not like saying that in a way to be braggy about it, but just, it, just what the facts were. And, you know, you put a very, a fully immersive experience next to a semi-immersive experience. If the fully immersive experience has a little bit going for it, it wins because it does bring that magic to the table for most people that have never experienced. So I think that that people are not as cynical and are more curious than maybe you have stated. And look, if you're subject to a really bad experience, you know, it's like probably drinking too much when you're young, you know, it pushes you back from the, from doing it. On the other side of the coin, um, I, I agree with you um, that, it is a timing game, and you know, you know, our 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 particular strategy was probably to overproduce at the very beginning. I think we could have done some of the things we've done and have them not been as good and it not made any difference, but be good enough. And then that was just to say we can do it, and you can trust us as we're in conversations with people, and we have a, we have something an effect a resume to show. Look, this is the type of quality we do, and if we're going to places like you know, uh, King Tut's, you know, the Egyptian government or going to a national park, we want to self show people that, you know, we respect their brand and we can at least do a version of what their brand is and, and have it be respectable and enjoyable for the consumer. Dave, the, 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 I want to pause you for a second, just because I sure. want to get, run out of time and I want to get to a couple of the practical things for our listeners that would like to know, where is this uh, Yosemite experience playing because, as I recall, Joel, it was fairly near the park itself, right? And unless that's changed, uh, so yeah. So there's a traditional movie theater, like just your standard local movie theater in Oakhurst, that has kind of knocked down an area. They they went all in and like built out a, like a VR portion of their theater, right? And that's um, what that's, I think. You know, I can't. I can't. I can't. Yosemite, forty five minutes from Yosemite, something like that. Yeah, I mean the the pretty far from the valley so there's not really any cities anywhere near El Capitan right like it's like the it's it's the south gate which is pretty much where anybody from LA or San Francisco like most of California enters Yosemite from that mm -hmm. south gate through Oakers that's where all the hotels are stuff like that um can't say too much about the conversations we're having but the the plan is to actually create distribution in the park itself and and with multiple mm -hmm. parks so that's that's what we're working towards. Uh, it's kind of like a like it's good to have just kind of like a a first test place with an with with actual audience feedback. Right, because um, many parks have visitor centers where they play yeah. something on a on a movie screen that tends to be sort of awful and very old technology. Yeah, they have a captive audience, right? I mean, I think yeah. both you and Charlie know my my I I know an inordinate amount about Yosemite because my son is a, a fairly elite climber and he's a guide in Yosemite. He's a, we he's a guy about, going to those places that we're taking you to. Yeah, when we were talking about this a couple of years ago, I was fascinated what, with what Joel was telling me because it's like, boy, if you can get this in the right place, there are so many people that have just gone to the park and had kind of a far away experience from the lowest form of yeah. professional hikers. They're not getting up into the mountains or onto the wall, but if you can get them up onto the wall and give them that experience, then that's a pretty powerful uh, combination. As we saw with traditional media with Free Solo, right? It became yeah. a hit because of the intimacy that you got from that experience. And I think from what you told me, 
um, that the Yosemite experience is is fairly intimate that way. Like you're you're kind yeah, of building. yeah one one uh, one part of our of our of our project you do actually track Alex Honnold's free solo route. Like yeah. and we and we actually had climbers up on El Capitan's face overnight, multiple nights doing photogrammetry in the heart, which is kind of like one of the more known or like one of the more visible features of El Cap from the ground. Like you can see that kind of heart shape that's in the side, but we fly into the heart and you can actually get really close. And yeah, there's parts of that. You know, our photogrammetry team, our DP, Greg Downing is like, he's been shooting Yosemite for 30 years. And he's like, he's like, there are places we went that no human has ever gone. Cause we were like use, using ropes and all kinds of fun, crazy stuff to like get up there and do photogrammetry on a vertical face. Yeah, pretty interesting. I'll be, I'll be amazed when I finally get to see it. Cause we're going up to Yosemite to visit my son in about a month. And if I watch it, I'll go, oh, there's my son. He's hanging out there. Charlie, can I just interject one thing? Like, you know, you, you know, when we were just emailing before the podcast, you know, we talked, you, you mentioned the USC stuff. Yeah. I was just about to bring that up before yeah. we let you guys go. You know, I, you know, my daughter um, just graduated from USC film school and it brought me um, into their orbit and um, uh, myself and the Dean were of USC film school. were able to work out an idea. Elizabeth Daly. Elizabeth Daly. Exactly. Yeah, she used to be a Warner executive, I think. Yeah. No, no. I think I, 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 there was a Robert Daly who was the, used to be a you know, head of the studio, but it, unless she was, and I'm unaware of it, um, I think it, there's some name oh. confusion there amongst that. You're not, that's not the first time I've heard that. I thought <laughs> myself, actually. Um, she's been, she's, she's been there for like 30 plus years. Uh, she's, okay. She's yeah. A, so she's the, a legend in the, it, I would say at the school and, and in that, in the industry. And, and we, you know, what we basically, where we basically landed, given what my interests were and, and my interests that developed through my daughter in the school was what I would best describe as venture philanthropy, because USC has always been on the cutting, USC film school, that is, has always been on the cutting edge of, of technology storytelling. And you know, it really occurs to me, and back to something Ronnie was saying, like, you know, what are the subjects? We've picked these subjects that we're discussing here. I, to be honest, I have no clue if those were good choices at the end of the day or, or bad choices. Only really time tells. And the basic thinking was that the, the, the kids who are, who are the next generation of storytellers are going to be so much more intuitive about subject matter and about pushing the envelope I'll speak for myself, but then I know I could be. Um, there, there's just a generational advantage. So, you know, this thing came together and, you know, this year we will be producing and I'll, I'll, we'll be sending you guys all invites, but we're going to have a um, conference where we're going to highlight the content and, and um, maybe involve other schools as well, ultimately, as, we, as this thing gets legs. And we want to create kind of an industry day sponsored by us and by USC to kind of discuss the things we're discussing now and at the same time to highlight the, the output from the studio. So we're very excited about, you know, there might be synergies between, uh, between them and City Lights, but, you know, I think there'll be synergies for a lot of people, hopefully out of this experiment.
David and Joel, thank you guys so much for coming on the show today. It's, I can't wait to see the Yosemite thing. Uh, it's been, you know, your work so far has been stellar and inspiring to everybody in the industry. I'm going to have you guys sign off and have Ted and Roni stay on because we've got a new feature on our show, which is uh, listener mail. So we're going to hit some listener mail after we let you guys go. But thanks right. again for coming on. And we'll look forward to seeing you in the reel. Great. We appreciate you. Appreciate it, guys. It was nice chatting. Take care. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. All right. So I didn't forget this week. No, I'm so excited. We remember Listener this. mail. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So Casey Green uh, sent us a piece of mail. And anybody, by the way, who wants to send us mail, we have thisweekinxr at gmail.com. So we welcome listener questions, or of course, if you're acquainted with one of us, just text it on over or uh, send it to us directly. But um, this is a piece of, uh, <clears throat> this is a question that has a preamble, and I'll hit that really quickly. Uh, for XR wearables, I would say that by 2032, um, Apple will become the leader with some other company, Meta, Google, Sony, Samsung, uh, or perhaps a combination of companies coming in second. So essentially a duopoly as we have now between iOS and Android. Uh, and they'll each develop slightly different approaches uh, for popular applications. Um, now, um, Casey says, I believe the key to success will be which company develops the best uh, OS slash UI and achieves acceptance and loyalty um, from this user base. Apple appears to be best suited for this. So his question is, do you agree or disagree with his assessment that uh, Apple is going to have default dominance in this? You want to go first, Ronnie? You want me to go? I'll just throw it. I think, I think they will be top two or top three in the United States. It, it depends on revenue, number of units, but they're picking a high end um, price point, which is going to be unaffordable for a lot of people. Um, I think you have to look at regions of the world like Europe uh, may not be sold on what they're doing and particularly China and Asia and India may have other ideas. So I think it may be more fragmented globally than mobile phones. Um, and I think the price point fragmentation may give folks who figure out like a more achievable price point, uh, you know, that they may, they may have more volume. Apple may have like premium revenue, but I think other players may have more volume in consumer. And I think in enterprise and industry and in healthcare, you're just going to have an entirely new, a whole nother group of people. Right. So I think without segmenting it, you can't answer, but like in the U S in consumer, Apple's probably top two. But, but, you know, I think as you start to go into different sectors and around the world, it may change. So, Ted, sorry. No, it's, it's great. And I, I agree with all that. I think maybe it's worth reflecting for a moment on the news story we didn't report on today that Apple has now cracked, at least for the moment, uh, the $3 trillion uh, corporate entity um, overall valuation. Um, so just by, uh, you know, <laughs> sheer you, size, sheer size and, and breadth and power, if you look at the vision of Steve Jobs coming sort of full circle to what people really want in the high end of kind of how humans connect to computers, uh, the full stack, the, the level of refinement, which you and I talked about, um, Roni, when the Vision uh, Pro came out uh, at sort of at length. Um, I, I think that Apple will probably end up ruling the roost for the next generation of OS and others will learn and do 
various forms of imitation to the point that David was making about uh, innovation and imitation um, as very similar to what we see with iOS versus Android is that they are fairly similar now and people could make an argument there are some things that you would do on an Android device that in some ways are a little more evolved than what Apple has done but as the full stack as the full user experience Apple tends to rule the roost because they put more cycles and way more dollars and way more R&D into that user experience. I think the same thing will happen with spatial devices. Apple will tend, now that they are on the market, regardless of the, the price category that it sits in, um, will lead that charge and others will learn, including our friends at Meta and you know, what they're doing to potentially broaden that market outside of that gaming core that they have and you know, we, the three of us, read a lot of stories about other than this ultra, ultra hardcore VR gamer that is really motivated to do it, the fall off is pretty quick. People play it, they buy it, they get it for a Christmas holiday or something, and then they, they're enamored for a little while, and then they get disenamored. What Apple tends to do is keep people enamored, right, with what they do and how they do it. Um, so I think what we saw was the beginning of that vision, and I think you're going to see more as it as it evolves. Charlie, I don't one, know. One parting thought uh, is simply that Apple says that they're going to have a low-cost device in 2025. We'll, we'll see these dates have uh, tend to be pretty slippery, but I think they understand that there's kind of this very high-end prosumer market uh, that is distinct from a mass market. And so I don't, I don't think they're going to let that market go. I think they just want to become good at this before they become good at that. They don't have enough of an app ecosystem to attract that big of an audience right now. So, um, you know, it's an amazing story, amazing to watch it play out. I'm privileged to be uh, able to observe it and write about it and talk about it with you two guys. So thank you for that. Thanks for that great question, Casey. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next Friday. Bye everyone.